This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to this bonus episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, the Old English Poetics episode. How do we know if a piece of Old English writing is poetry? It's quite simple, really, but not in the way that you might think. If you imagine a book of poetry today, then poems tend to be set out like poems, with the lengths of their lines reflecting their metre. Meter is the basic rhythmic structure of a poem. Usually in English poetry, meter is based on the use of stressed and unstressed syllables. In the most famous English meter, iambic pentameter, these syllables are arranged in such a way as to create a da-dum-da-dum effect that drives the verse forward. So, for example, in Shakespeare's Sonnet 12, When I do count the clock that tells the time, and see the brave day sunk in hideous night. You may be able to get a sense of the rhythm created by iambic pentameter in that sentence. To identify stress, we have to read the verse out loud to hear its effect. Different verse forms, such as sonnets, limericks, haiku, all have their particular meters. Things like rhyming and such are ornamental. Some forms, like sonnets, require particular rhyming structures to be classed as sonnets, but metre is the basic building block of a poem. Think of it this way. If someone says, I'm a poet and I didn't even know it, we all understand that this is a joke and that they're not really a poet. This is because while they can rhyme, they haven't shown any understanding of metre, and there's no regular rhythm behind what they said, so it doesn't sound like a poem. Even poems that don't rhyme use metre to structure themselves, because metre is essential to the poetic form. This is why books of poetry are printed in such a way as to reflect the metre of a text. Now, Old English poetry wasn't printed, this was long before Gutenberg. It was written, and when we look at poetic manuscripts, we see that it wasn't written in the way modern poetry is printed. It was copied in continuous lines just like prose. So at first glance, the two are indistinguishable. What sets them apart, though, is still metre. Poetry seems to have been first and foremost oral, as it traditionally was everywhere, and so a convention of making it look different from prose hadn't yet developed, as it has in our society, which has become so self-consciously literate. The metre of Old English poetry is the same as that of later English poetry. It is still based on stressed and unstressed syllables, Each line of Old English poetry can be split into two half-lines, each containing two stressed syllables called lifts, and a variable number of unstressed syllables called falls. Each line is divided into a half-line by a pause called a caesura, and this is emphasised by a change in rhythm, created by mixing up the distribution of stressed and unstressed syllables, or by incorporating half-stresses. 
The stress is usually placed on nouns and adjectives, although it can fall on other parts of speech as a scene requires. It is also usually the root of a multisyllabic word that is stressed, rather than any grammatical elements, like how in the word houses, the stress is on house rather than es. Houses just sounds odd. The different kinds of rhythm we find can be divided up into types, in a way that is quite difficult to communicate through audio, but you can see Donald Scragg's essay in the Cambridge Companion to Old English Literature for a detailed breakdown of these different types. What is important to emphasise is that poets were aware of how they used stress and the impact it had on an audience. They thus worked within the constraints of Old English metre to craft effective poems. While metre is essential to understanding Old English poetry, its most well-known feature is the use of alliteration. The half-lines of poetry had to be connected by alliteration. Most often, the two stressed syllables in the first half-line would alliterate with the first stressed syllable of the second half-line. Thus, while the rhythm of the two half-lines was different, they were bound together through alliteration. Alliterative poetry was looked down upon by the Normans, and it fell out of favour not long after the Norman conquest. It was revived, however, in the 14th century in Middle English poems, like Pierce Plowman and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which sought to revive the style and rejuvenate the dormant strand of English language poetry. In addition to alliteration, poets did also make use of other ornamental features, like internal rhyme to add appeal to their works. These on their own, though, don't make a piece of text poetry. We see this in, for example, the use made by writers of prose like Wolfstan and Alfred of Eensham, who would regularly incorporate internal rhyme and alliteration and other means of poetic ornamentation into their prose, specifically their homilies. This goes to show the extent to which Old English poetry and its forms were born out of an oral tradition. It was consciously understood by people who were trained in some kind of rhetoric that using the native poetic ornamental styles of Old English poetry was a way in which they could make their prose, their vernacular prose, more engaging and ultimately more effective. But because these writers didn't write their prose in a consistent metre in the way that Old English poets did, their work can at best be called poetic prose rather than poetry proper. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, 
a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. So lines of Old English poetry reflect a careful interplay of rhythm and alliteration, but most ideas can't just be expressed in single lines. The sentences of Old English poetry tend to be long, and although they are often grammatically quite simple so as not to throw off the native Old English speaker, they can be overwhelming to a student on account of another distinctive feature of Old English poetry, namely variation. This refers to the tendency of poets to repeat images within a single sentence so as to highlight different aspects of a thought or a scene. Usually these variations will take the form of phrases which all link back to the same verb. For example, we see this scene from Beowulf in which the hero is led to Grendel's watery lair. Quote, the son of princes set off across towering stone cliffs, narrow defiles, confined single paths, unexplored passages, steep headlands, many a lair of water monsters. He and a few skillful men led the way to reconnoitre the terrain, until he suddenly discovered mountain trees leaning across a bare cliff, a joyless thicket, a pool lay beneath, bloody and turbid. For all the Danes, the friends of the Shieldings, there was the suffering of terrible mental anguish for many a thing, for every warrior, there was desolation, when on that cliff, beside the mere, they discovered Ashhera's head. End quote. When describing how Beowulf set off across the cliffs, the poet offers a series of images which all link back to his setting off, and which all gradually unfold the inhospitable character and loneliness of the path to Grendel's mere. Again, upon the discovery of Ashhera's decapitated head, the poet uses variation both to underscore the torment that this causes his friends, but also as a way to build tension before the final reveal of what they've found by telling us how they're reacting to what they're seeing without telling us actually what they're seeing itself. Thus, this scene offers a pretty good summation of how Old English poets could use variation to influence their readers. Thus, all Old English poetry has these features, rhythmically defined half-lines bound together by alliteration and a tendency to use variation to provoke a response in the audience. But who wrote Old English poetry, and how was it performed? As for who, there are only two named poets from Anglo-Saxon England whose vernacular work has survived, Cadman and Kinewulf. In the main episode on the Saints of Northumbria, I talked a bit about Cadman, whose story is related by Bede, and who is the author of the earliest Old English poem, Cadman's Hymn. According to Bede, he became associated with the Abbey of Whitby under Hild, and seems to have spent his days composing religious poetry there, although none of this poetry except for his short hymn has survived. Kinewulf was a more prolific writer. He is usually thought to have lived in the 9th century, probably in Mercia, given some notable Anglian and Mercian features of his dialect. Like Cadman, he was probably associated with a religious community, but unlike Cadman, who may have been illiterate and thus composed only oral works, Kinewulf was certainly a well-educated and literate man. His four surviving poems fall into two categories. Poetic versions of Christian legends, including Eleanor, Juliana, and the Fates of the Apostles, and a more theological poem on the Ascension, 
which has been identified by scholars as Christ II, it being one of three similar poems, all focused on different aspects of Christ's life and afterlife. Handily, we know which poems were composed by Kinewolf due to a peculiar habit he had of signing his work. Each of his poems ends with an epigraph in which Kinewolf addresses the reader and asks for their prayers. In these epigraphs, he weaves the use of several runes which spell out his name while also being pertinent to the text. So, for example, he may refer to the need to reject earthly wealth using the Feor rune, Feor being the Old English word for wealth, which also serves as the letter F in his name. It was very unusual in this period for poets to put their name to their work, and Kinewolf seems to have taken joy in doing so in a way that was witty enough that not all of his readers would grasp it, the popular understanding of runes having seemingly vanished by the time Kinewolf wrote. Besides Cadman and Kinewolf, all Old English poems are anonymous, and we're forced to look to literary and archaeological evidence for signs of how they were performed. In various heroic poems, not least in Beowulf, reference is made to a shop, spelled S-C-O-P, who served a function in Anglo-Saxon society similar to that of bards in Wales and Ireland and skulls in Scandinavia. They were professional poets who would entertain the wealthy with traditional songs and with their own compositions. The main instrument of choice was seemingly the lyre. In some depictions of King David, he is shown playing a lyre-like instrument, which is almost identical to the remains of such an instrument found wrapped in a beaver skin in the Sudden Who ship burial. The lyre, it seems, was an instrument held in some esteem, and probably the poems of the Anglo-Saxons were recited to the sound of a lyre. For most of Anglo-Saxon history, poems seem to have been mainly an oral thing. In the late 10th century, though, something strange seems to happen. Churchmen decided to begin copying Old English poems into manuscripts. There is at least one reference to a book of vernacular poetry prior to this, in a book supposedly owned by King Alfred, but no vernacular poetic collections survive from Anglo-Saxon England prior to the late 10th century. Four main collections of Old English poetry survive from this time. The Exeter Book, the Vercelli Book, the Junius Manuscript, and the Noel Codex, sometimes called the Beowulf Codex. Of these, only two, the Exeter Book and the Junius Manuscript, contain poetry exclusively. The other two mix their poetry with prose. With the exception of the Exeter book, all of the collections of Old English poetry seem to have been created with a particular theme in mind. Junius and Vercelli are both collections of religious literature, and the Noel Codex seems to be a collection of monster stories. The Exeter book is extremely unusual, because it doesn't seem to have a unifying theme. It just seems to be a poetic collection, made at a time when there really was no precedent for such a collection. I'll go into each of these manuscripts in much more detail in a future bonus episode, but for now I wanted to introduce them as the main sources we have for Old English poetry. This poetry has several features that make it distinct. Its form is distinctively Germanic, bearing some close similarities to the Old Norse form for Nirthislag, used mainly for Eddic poetry, which is also a kind of alliterative verse, and even seems to have some parallels 
in Old High German and Old Saxon poems from the continent, although not many of these have survived. Much of the Old English poetic corpus can seem quite simple on a superficial reading, but in fact it required careful consideration of stress, word choice and intention when composing, making the ability to compose fine poetry into a much sought-after art. It's my hope that in this episode you will have learned something of how Old English poetry works, and who knows, maybe you'll be inspired to try your hand at reviving the form. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and as always, your support is greatly appreciated. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.